We are in Revelation 11, 15 to 19 this morning. We've been working our way through the whole book of Revelation and consecutively uh, dealing with each uh, portion of it. And this morning we are at the end of chapter 11, which I just read for you. Now, by way of reminder, we are interpreting the book of Revelation according to what has been called the cyclical view. As you might know already, or, or you might suspect if you've ever read Revelation, there's quite a bit of debate about Revelation, how we're to understand it, how we're to take it, how we're to interpret it. So, in the introductory message to the series, which was a number of months ago now, I kind of briefly outlined the various ways, and I told you that we would be adopting the cyclical view. I'm not going through all of the different ways and all the different options each week. We're dealing with the uh, cyclical view. And the root word of cyclical being cycle, right? So this view sees multiple cycles in Revelation and understands Revelation to be covering essentially the same events or, or the same time period from various perspectives. The way if you watch a sporting event on TV, there may be various replays of the same athletic achievement from various angles. So I know track and field has been on our mind lately. So somebody's running a race and you see it, first of all, in real time. And then they go back and they, they show you the start. And then they show you the entire race again in slow motion. Or they zoom in on lanes four and five where two runners were neck and neck or whatever. And you realize, you don't say, well, wow, it's amazing how those athletes can run the same race with the same intensity seven times in a row. Rather, you realize that you're watching really just the same thing reiterated over and over again from different angles. This is something like how uh, the cyclical view understands Revelation. So according to this cyclical view, Jesus speaks to the seven churches of his day in Revelation 2 and 3, and then, which each one of these is a real historic church, and yet also is representative of some of the pitfalls and successes that we might meet with as local churches in all ages. And then following that section, Jesus reveals to his people in a course of several cycles, the, uh, basically the course that history will take between his first and second comings. So chapter one provides us with a setting and context of the book of Revelation. It introduces us to John who is exiled on Patmos. And it tells us that he sees the resurrected and glorified Jesus and that Jesus gives him what follows. Chapters 2 and 3, like I said, contain the letters. Chapters 4 and 5 give us a vision of the heavenly throne room and of Jesus who is worthy to open the scroll, which is the scroll of human history between his ascension and the second coming. He, he opens and unfolds to us all that happens. In chapters 6, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 5, we have the first cycle through human history, given in the mode of a vision of seven seals. And then we have the ending of that cycle with the seventh seal, and quote, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Chapter 8, 6 begins another cycle. 
And he goes all the way to the end of chapter 11, where we are today. And this cycle is recapitulating the same time period as the first cycle, but instead of seven seals, it's seven trumpets. And again, it ends with, quote, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Chapter 11, verse 19. Then chapters 12 through 14 give us the third cycle through human history. And this time when it ends, we don't have that same familiar ending, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, etc. Instead, we read of Jesus coming on the clouds and harvesting the earth and treading the winepress of God's wrath, which is clearly the end of all things, the judgment that Christ brings at the end. And so this corresponds thematically to the cataclysmic finale of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, etc., which finished the first two cycles. Chapters 15 and 16 give us the fourth cycle, which is seven bowls, ending with the seventh bowl, and back to the common refrain, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, and great hailstones. And then 17 through 19 give us the fifth cycle. This time we don't have flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. But again, we have Jesus returning and treading the winepress of God's wrath, as was the case at the end of the third cycle, at the end of chapter 14. And then chapters 20 through 22 give us the sixth cycle, and end not with the common refrain of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, etc., but with Jesus returning and defeating his enemies, rendering judgments, rendering the judgments of God upon them. And this time, the added emphasis of the wonderful blessedness of God's people following on the heels of Jesus' victory over his enemies. So, perhaps you already see the cyclical view or in, in just in that brief review, based on the common indicators of each cycle. That just like, for example, if you're watching replays of a 100 meter race, every time you see them cross the finish line, you see, okay, that's the same point in time. So every time we have these rumblings, peals of thunder, lightning, we go, okay, that's the same time. Or every time Jesus returns and red, treads the winepress of God's wrath and renders justice on his enemies, we go, all right, that's the same time. Doesn't matter whether you see it uh, in the case of the 100 meter from above, from the side, in normal speed, in slow motion, you still recognize these same indicators are markers for us of the same time period. So you see over and over again, from Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming. From Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming. From Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming. Which is why we call this the cyclical view. Perhaps you can already see that. But even if you cannot perceive yet the cycles based on these textual indicators of each cycle ending, which I've just described to you, perhaps the thematic correspondence of each of these sections will help bolster the case that you can see at the end of all of these things is God's judgment upon his enemies and his rescue of his people, which corresponds thematically to what happens, what we're expect, led to expect in the other 65 books of the Bible will happen at the end. In any case, though, even if you're not convinced of this cyclical view overall, this is how we're approaching this sermon series, and I just wanted to review that. Uh, and reiterate that we're using the cyclical view as an interpretive lens to make sense of the book. And interpreted within this paradigm of the cyclical view, 
when we come to the seventh trumpet here at the end of Revelation, we are at the end of a cycle, which also means that we're dealing with the end of this present age between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. So we're looking at the end, even though we're in the middle of the book of Revelation, even though we're only in chapter 11 and it goes all the way to 22, within the paradigm of the cyclical view, we're dealing with the end here. And if the cyclical view itself isn't persuasive enough to make this case that we're dealing with the end, there are additional textual indicators, even in the passage before us, which indicate that this is indeed the way we are to understand this seventh trumpet. Let's just look at them briefly. In verse 18, the 24 elders indicate that this is the time when the dead have been judged and the nations cease their raging as the Son of God conquers. So the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. So the seventh trumpet here is when the nations stop raging because they're conquered by the Son and the dead are judged. If I had begun this sermon instead of doing it the way I did, and I just said, when will the nations stop raging? And when will the dead be judged? And when will the Son of God conquer? You would have told me when Jesus comes back. Right? So we see here this textual indicator. The 24 elders, secondly, also indicate that this is the time for the servants of God to be rewarded. Also in verse 18. The time came for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants. Again, if I had asked you at the beginning, when do you expect that Christ will reward you? When will you receive your reward? You would say at the end, right? When Jesus returns, this is when he's going to reward his people. Thirdly, everywhere else that this image of the last trumpet is mentioned in Scripture, it refers to the end. We could go back to uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, etc., etc. 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So we see this last trumpet is the end, when when Christ comes. Now, I've already told you, I don't think that all of the imagery in Revelation is literal, but I think that 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians, which are not dealing in imagery, tell us that there is going to be a trumpet. I expect one day there will be a trumpet and Jesus will come back, not based on Revelation, but based on 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. Since the first century readers already had that expectation that there is a last trumpet coming, it also makes sense that in the imagery of Revelation, the last trumpet doesn't represent something else entirely, but represents what the first century readers would expect 
a last trumpet to represent, which is Christ coming back and rendering God's wrath upon his enemies and rescuing and rewarding his people. And then, fourthly, and sorry, I'm going to put in one more plug for the cyclical view. If this is indeed the end of all things in Revelation 11, the end of this stage and phase of history and Jesus is returning and judging the dead and conquering the nations and so on and so forth, then we would expect chapter 12 to begin another cycle. And lo and behold, indeed, we return back to the birth of Christ at the beginning of Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Another sign appeared in heaven, chapter 12 and verse 3. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when, her, when she bore her child, he might devour her. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's Jesus. Right? So all of this, I'm just trying to really make the case for you and make it sufficiently so that we're going into this actual text with it in our minds that this is the end. This is when Jesus comes back. This is when Jesus conquers the kings of the earth and the rulers who have gathered themselves together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us, as Psalm 2 says. This is when Jesus treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. This is when... Jesus rewards his servants and judges the dead. This is that time. All right? Whether you take the cyclical view or not, however you get there, Revelation 11, 15 and 19 is dealing with the second coming of Christ and the end of all things. All right. Believe it or not, all that's introduction. That's also the most complex part of the sermon, and we're going to get simpler from here. But I wanted to make that case sufficiently so that we all believe and agree this is the end. This is Jesus' return. And this, the rest of this sermon is really only two points. What this passage tells us is going to happen at the last trumpet. And then on what basis this passage indicates that this is all going to happen at the last trumpet. Alright, so first, what this passage tells us is going to happen at the last trumpet. And the first thing that we read in verse 15 is the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now notice that it doesn't say kingdoms, plural, but it says kingdom, singular. So this world, right, and the way it's ruled and and governed now is called a kingdom. The kingdom of this world. Alright, so basically we have the world dealt with collectively as opposed to all these distinctions between Bajans and Americans and Australians and Malawians and whoever else, right? What we have here is mankind and, and this world dealt with collectively. This world is called a kingdom. And At the last trumpet, the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom 
of our Lord and of His Christ. Now, note that this does not say that in the last trumpet, the kingdom of the world has become garbage or refuse. Or even that it has become useless and redundant and is therefore discarded or annihilated. Rather, Jesus recovers it. Note that, because that's significant. When you think about Jesus coming back, what do you think of? This place disappearing? And you going somewhere else? Because look at what this passage says. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Jesus doesn't come back and say, away with this garbage. Away with this refuse. Get this out of here. I'm going to scrap this and do something else. Jesus comes back and goes, this is mine. I lay claim to this. Note that, because that's a tremendously significant point of eschatology, which is the doctrine of the end times. The storyline of Scripture does not have this world being discarded in favor of something better. The storyline of Scripture has this world being fixed, being repaired, being recovered, being redeemed. What's the first book of the Bible? Someone call it a Genesis. Alright? I'm no, I'm no Greek scholar, right? But beginning, right? Genesis, the genesis of this or that. We understand that means the beginning of it, right? The genesis, if, so if you read in a history book, the genesis of such and such political movement was in France in, 17, in the 1770s, right? You would understand the beginning, right? Also connected somehow in etymology is generate, right? Genesis, generate, etymologically these things are connected. They come from the same stems, right? And so to generate something is also to create it, to begin it, right? To regenerate something is to re-begin it, right? Regenesis, regenerate, regeneration. These are all connected words. I'm not going to go into well, the participle and the prefix and the suffix, you know, like, I don't, I don't know all of that in Greek. But what I'm saying to you, you can go look up and find people who do and verify what I'm saying to you. There's this, this common stem between these words, Genesis, Generate. And basically, what we are taught in Scripture is... Not that there is a genesis of this world and then an annihilation of this world, but what we are taught in Scripture is that there is a regenesis, if you will, a regenesis of this world, a regeneration of this world. Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 and 29 in the King James Version says this Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake 
shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. You know what that says in, in the ESV? Which is just a more modern translation. It's not fundamentally different from the King James. We just use it because it's easier to read. But they're both good translations. And Matthew 19 in the ESV says this. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, etc., etc., you have followed Me, will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But even our ESV has a footnote. If you, have, if you have one, look at it. There's a little footnote. Truly I say to you in the new world. And then there's a little footnote. And you go down and it says, Greek, in the regeneration. Yeah. Jesus tells His disciples, when this world is regenerated. Right? Most of the time when we think of regeneration, we think of people being regenerated, born again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What Jesus tells the disciples here is that there is going to be a regenerated world. There is going to be a new world as the ESV renders it, but it's not new in the sense of scrap that one and here's a different one. It's going to be new in the sense of the way that we are made new. Jesus teaches his disciples this world is going to be made new. And when is that going to happen? It corresponds with the time when everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for his name's sake will receive a hundredfold and eternal life. You see, Jesus is talking about what we would call heaven. And he calls it the regeneration. But what about 2 Peter 3.10? Which says this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies which will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. What about that passage? Doesn't that teach the destruction, the annihilation of the heavens and the earth? I would say no, not clearly. If I drove my car into that cut rock at 100 miles an hour and somehow survived and I said I destroyed my car that would be a pretty true statement wouldn't it? it, it it's, it's obliterated right? We could, use, we could use words like so what about if I said my car is gone that would also be pretty fair wouldn't it? Think of the way that we talk about regeneration 
with respect to a human. I quoted it already from 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, listen, what happened when you came to Christ? Was, was who you were annihilated and obliterated, and then God made an entirely new being and gave that new being the same name? No, that's not how, that's not how regeneration works, is it? There is a very real sense in which the old is gone and the new has come. You have, in a sense, the old man has died, right? And you have been made alive together with Christ. These are the way, ways that Scripture talks about this. In Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9, God promises, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. This concept of a refiner's fire is throughout scripture. A fire of judgment upon the wicked of the earth is coming at the end. A fire of purification is coming at the end. There will be a cataclysmic change to this world, no doubt. And this is what Second Peter is talking about. The present way things are, the present order of things, certainly is passing away. This is what Peter talks about dissolving and exposing the earth, passing away of the old and ushering in of the new. It will be like a refiner's fire. And then we will be able to say in the regeneration, the old has gone, the new has come. Behold, this is not the old heavens and earth. This is the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. So Jesus reclaims the kingdom of this world as opposed to annihilating the kingdom of this world. And two things will happen at this time. God's wrath is poured out upon the destroyers of the earth. And implicitly also the dead who are not Christ's servants. This is in verse 18. Look whose wrath or pardon me, look, look upon whom God's wrath comes. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Revelation eleven eighteen. The time for the dead to be judged. We know from other scriptures that those who die in Christ, for those who die in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Right? But the dead who will be recipients of God's wrath at this time are those who have died outside of Christ. And then also you, you go down and you look at the last clause in verse 18. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. At this time when Jesus comes back. He pours out God's wrath upon the dead who have not trusted in him. And upon the destroyers of the earth. John 5.22 says that God has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Psalm 2, which I cited for you earlier, 
about the kings of the earth and the rulers gathering themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed, ends like this. The Lord said to me, You are my God, or pardon me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Look, this, what we're reading about in Revelation 11, is when Jesus makes the nations His heritage and the ends of the earth His possession and breaks the rulers of the earth who gather themselves together against Him with a rod of iron and dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is when Jesus vindicates His right to rule and His anointing as Messiah and rightful heir to be king of this earth. It's when the last trumpet sounds and Jesus returns. And all of a sudden, all these people who have rebelled against Jesus realize we have made a grave mistake. Look, the, the wrath of God is coming at this time. Revelation six sixteen, which is also towards the end of a cycle, talks about the day of the wrath of the Lamb. This is what it's going to be. The seventh trumpet sounds, and Jesus returns, and it's the day of the wrath of the Lamb. And He breaks the nations in pieces and takes rule over them. That's one thing that happens at this time. The second thing that happens at this time is that Christ's servants are rewarded. Again, look at Revelation eleven eighteen. The 24 elders say that it is the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants. Well, how are the servants of the Lord rewarded? For one thing, they are, they are rescued. Remember that the beast has been making war against them, that they've been dealing with all kinds of difficulties in these previous six trumpets. The locusts from the bottomless pit have come upon the earth and the beast is making war and things are just terrible. But the time has come for destroying the destroyers of the earth. How long, O Lord, the saints have prayed earlier in Revelation. And it's at the end of these cycles. It's at the return of Jesus when Jesus says, all right, no more. No more persecution. No more, no more attacking my people. They are rescued and vindicated. They are also rewarded by being comforted. We go back to Revelation 7, 17. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They are rewarded as we read earlier from Matthew 19 with houses and family and lands in the regeneration. Does that seem strange to hear that that's going to be part of your reward? Is maybe a plot of land? A house? Brothers, sisters, mothers? 
Right? Like, didn't you think it was a harp? Right? Like, these are very earthy rewards. But Jesus says in the regeneration, you who have left houses and fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers and lands will receive a hundredfold. And lest we think that Jesus is talking about another time, there's a parallel passage where He says both in this life and in the age to come. Which still puts it in the age to come. Look, you may, you may get a house and a plot of land. Right? <laughs> Mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. In heaven? I thought it was like basically like a really long church service. Look, according to Jesus in Matthew 19, in the regeneration, houses, lands, brothers, think. The fact that Jesus reclaims the kingdom of this world as opposed to annihilating the kingdom of this world is a tremendously profound eschatological point. Jesus is not scrapping this world and doing something entirely different. Jesus is reclaiming, recovering. And this, these statements that Jesus made earlier during the course of His earthly ministry that we will receive houses and lands and mothers and fathers and stuff of like this, these are very earthy things. If you go back and read the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, like go back and read Isaiah 65 and 66 and look at the future blessedness of Israel. It's presented to us in very earthy terms. It's not like you're going to get a real shiny pair of wings and a harp. But this is the way that we do so often think about the age to come. This is the way that we so, so often do think about the regeneration. It's helpful, I think, and, and in, in some sense, look, let's, let me make a confession. Maybe I'm just not spiritual enough. But listen, this is more compelling to me to look forward to. An earth that is right, an earth that is fixed, a place where I still have a body, but it works properly. Right? A place where I can still go out and watch the sunrise and the sunset. You know, a place, so on and so forth, right? Like a place where there is land. A place where there are houses. You know? This is, to me, more compelling than sort of the typical vision that we have of just floating around in some sort of ethereal existence, finally freed from our mortal bodies. And, in, you know, not to, not to be irreverent, but in some sort of eternal church service. I know how my mind wanders, even in an hour and a half, two hours, right? And, you know? And not, like, I know we'll be changed, and obviously we'll be in the presence of God, and not every, it's not going to be, like, preachers as, as boring and, and as dry as me. You know, but but at the same time, I wonder is is that is that what the Bible presents to us? And if it is, then it is the fact that I just am sinful and unspiritual. But as I look at the scripture, I, I think that may not actually be what it is. And the portrait that is painted for us, I think, is much more compelling. And the greatest reward of all is as Revelation 22.4 puts it, that we will see His face. 
Yes, we will live in this renewed heavens and earth, but look, like my greatest thing in heaven isn't going to be my little bungalow, you know, or like 10 acres out in the country somewhere. That's not going to be the greatest thing, right? It will be a nice thing and an enjoyable thing. It'd be great to see some of y'all there. I hope all of you. It would be great. I'm looking forward to seeing loved ones and family members and friends and so on and so forth. I'm looking forward to seeing people who are, you know, maybe crippled here, walking around and doing jumping jacks up there. I'm looking forward to not having to have conversations about sin anymore, sickness anymore, and so on and so forth. But look, we will see His face. And I think what Scripture puts, puts to us is not that our eternal existence is going to be something entirely different from what we're doing now. It's more like it's going to be what we were supposed to be doing now. But it's fixed. And we're still going to be humans. And we're still going to do human stuff. But we're going to do it without sin. And everything's going to be in its right proportion. And God is going to dwell with us. And He will be our God and we will be His people. There will be no sickness or sorrow or crying anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. He says, when Jesus comes back, He's reclaiming and He's going to judge the destroyers of the earth and those who have died outside of Christ. And He is going to reward His people with rescue, with vindication, with the comfort of wiping every tear from their eyes, with stuff like houses and lands. And with His very presence, we will see His face. This is the great and glorious hope that we as Christians have to look forward to. This is what will happen at the last trumpet. Which brings us to our second point. On what basis this passage indicates that this is all going to happen at the last trumpet. And for this, I point you to verse 19. (laughs) Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the Ark of His Covenant was seen within His temple. The Ark of the Covenant may at first seem like a surprising element of this vision. Especially depending on your theology, if you think that the Ark of the Covenant has nothing to do with New Covenant believers. If you think that basically the Old Covenant has nothing to do with us, Whatsoever, and that we're free from the law. Because in the Ark of the Covenant was the law. But even if we acknowledge, okay, the Ark of the Covenant contains the law of God, and we just go, but what is it doing here after the last trumpet? Why, do, why all of a sudden do we just have this, what seems to be almost a random assertion that he's seen the Ark of the Covenant in God's temple? Well, it's telling us, it's implying to us, it's insinuating to us the basis upon which our hope, which I just described at length, comes to fruition. Why is it that we get a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells? Why is it that we get righteousness, or pardon me, not righteousness, rescue and vindication? Why is it that we get every tear wiped away from our eyes? Why is it that that we are not recipients of God's wrath, but rather we receive houses and lands and brothers and fathers and mothers and so on. Why do we get to see His face? 
Then I saw the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Let's, let's connect these dots. The Ark contained the Ten Commandments, Exodus 25.16 and Exodus 40.20, which is God's law. The book of Hebrews indicates that at some point they put a jar of manna in there also and Aaron's rod that budded. But the principal item that was in there was God's law. That was the first use of the Ark of the Covenant and that's sort of the typical use of the Ark of the Covenant. Just like these hot days, one use of a car might be to go in and turn on the air conditioning and get some relief. But, but for sure, the first and foremost and primary use is to get you from point A to point B. Right? In, in, in a sense, the obviously not a perfect analogy, but in a sense, the primary use of the Ark of the Covenant was to house the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are, of course, a summary of God's law. Jesus teaches us hypothetically, yes, do this and you will live. Luke, you can look at Luke 10, Luke 18, where you see people coming and asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in one case, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Luke 18, he's, he says, well, you know the commandments, right? In other words, implicitly, yeah, go do them and you will live. Jesus is not teaching us works righteousness in either of those passages, but he is teaching us that hypothetically, if you always love God and neighbor, or equivalent to that, if you always kept God's law, there would be no reason for you to be condemned because these are the perfect standards of God's righteousness. And God's law summarized in the Ten Commandments is unyielding. God couldn't bless us with a new heavens and new earth and let us into Christ's eternal kingdom without the law being satisfied if God is to remain just. Is there anything God cannot do? Yes. God cannot be just and justify the ungodly without satisfying the demands of His law. He can't do both of those things at once. And so Romans chapter 3 explains for us the solution to this dilemma. It says, All have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's by sending Jesus to satisfy the demands of the law that God can be both just and the justifier, as Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 puts it. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus came and satisfied the demands of the law, both in terms of their precepts by His righteous life, 
and in terms of the penalty that the law requires by dying in our place. And because of what Jesus has done, God may be both just and justify people like me and people like you who don't deserve to be justified. And the Ark of the Covenant had this imagery built right in already in an Old Covenant way. The law was in there, which reminded the Israelites of God's holiness. And yet, on top of the Ark, there was what was called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, atonement would be made where an animal was substituted for the people of Israel. The animal would die in the place of the people and its blood would be poured out on the mercy seat on top of the ark. And so it's almost as if the law, in, the law inside... <coughs> sorry, let me say that again. The law was inside... And, and then it's almost like the mercy seat on top represents the gospel. And so the Ark of the Covenant represents the demands of the law as well as the answering of the demands of the law in the atoning sacrifice that was killed and whose blood was shed upon the top of the mercy seat. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24 says that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so what we need to understand is that that old system of worship, the old covenant tabernacle and temple, was giving us pictures of truer and greater realities. And what the mercy seat prefigured and foreshadowed was not a Levitical priest going in with the blood of an animal, but was Christ coming in as a priest with His own blood and offering up His own blood as an atoning sacrifice on, as it were, a heavenly mercy seat. And so the Ark of the Covenant appearing in... Revelation 11 is indicating for us that the basis on which Jesus returns and reclaims the earth and rescues us and vindicates us and comforts us and gives us houses and lands and lets us dwell with Him and see His face is because though there is a law, there is also a mercy seat. And Jesus has entered into a heavenly tabernacle as it were with not with the blood of animals but with his own blood and he has made the propitiation that we actually need in in order that we can actually be justly justified forgiven permitted to see God's face welcomed to live in a new heavens and new earth in which, which righteousness dwells the work of Christ is sufficient to allow us to be justified and receive all of these blessings. And the work of Christ is sufficient even to make the earth uncursed, the earth itself. Romans 8 tells us that even creation itself is waiting in eager expectation to be set free from its bondage to corruption. As God said to Adam, 
Cursed is the ground because of you. It's as if he has said to Christ, Uncursed will the ground be because of you. Look, it's Jesus, his righteousness, his death on the cross, his work for us, which is the basis of the new heavens and new earth. And it's the basis of us having the hope of going, um, or I should say, I was going to say going there, but I should say of staying here and living here with him eternally and seeing his face.